All right, welcome to another episode of On the Streets. I'm your host, Jordan Orada, and with me today is Dr. Glenda Kwan, trauma surgery attending and associate residency director here at Swedish Medical Center. Thank you for being here today. Good morning, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Um, we've had a lot of interesting trauma cases lately here. Um, lots of really sick patients, lots of limb stuff, and you have happened to be on a lot of those. We want to talk about some pearls that you have... Uh, wanted to share based on some of the stuff you've seen. Does that sound right? Yeah. So um, for whatever reason, it's summertime, of course, and uh, this is our trauma busy season. Um, for whatever reason, it seems like we've been having a run of extremity injuries. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Perfect. Um, what is, I guess we'll just start with a case, or maybe we don't want to get too specific, but we can talk about a type of case that yeah. illustrates one of the points that we uh, have recently been taken care of. Yeah, we've had a lot of uh, pretty significant extremity injuries that have involved uh, vascular injuries. And so we've had a couple of patients come in with tourniquets from the field. Uh, and so we can talk a little bit about management of that and then patients' outcomes when they have vascular injuries because, um, you know, we can do a lot to try to re preserve their limbs. And I think that's such an interesting topic just because in my relatively short tenure in EMS, I've seen tourniquets go from something that we never do to something that we always do. And I think they're, as much as they're easy to put on, there still is some misconception about how to do it right. And, and we still see them come in inappropriate or multiple tourniquets inappropriately put on. So I yeah. guess step one is how do you properly apply a tourniquet? Where, how much pressure do you need it on a heavily oozing venous bleed? Like, give me, give me the scoop. Yeah. So I think we've seen, um, you know, again, you're right, an increase in the frequency in which tourniquets are used for patients, and they're definitely life-saving. Um, there have been some... Uh, cases where we think that the tourniquets could have been applied better, uh, but the gamut is, um, it can run from not tight enough where they're so loose that we can actually put our fingers under it, <laughs> um, to too many tourniquets, but none of them turned down tight enough. And so there's a, you know, there's a, there's some technique involved I and mean, the cat tourniquets are easy. And I think I, I love that people are getting trained in using them. Um, but the way we like to see a tourniquet and the way they're used most effectively is as close to the injury as possible so that you're um, applying pressure to arteries and veins as close to the injury as possible to preserve as much tissue proximal to the injury. So if you have a injury at the elbow, we want to see that tourniquet just above the elbow at the distal humerus. Um, one tourniquet should be enough if it is applied properly. So I think what there's some insight that we see in the operating room quite a bit when we're doing vascular surgery or when I see my um, orthopedic colleagues doing operations, they will frequently use a tourniquet intraoperatively. And we use a sterile tourniquet, I'm sorry, a sterile uh, blood pressure cuff, just like you would use you know, in any setting, a normal blood pressure cuff. We sterilize it, we put it on the extremity, it comes with an automated uh, machine that will turn it up to whatever uh, amount of pressure we choose. Um, so, for example, if you program it to be at 240 millimeters of mercury, it insufflates to that and holds it at that pressure very accurately. And when we do that, we have very reliably can get complete stoppage of flow. So we can mimic that in the field with a single 
properly applied tourniquet or even a blood pressure cuff that you have on any uh, ambulance, um, as long as the pressure is turned up high enough. So 200 to 40, somewhere in that range should give you good stoppage of blood flow. And, and really, that's the key, right? Is stopping the blood flow. You know that's it's right. working. You know it's tight enough when the bleeding stops. That's right. I think that putting the cat tourniquets on, um, you have to crank it down really hard. We had a case recently where we had a gentleman with an upper extremity, um, very deep laceration, lots of blood loss, um, had a couple of different tourniquets on, I think because when each tourniquet was applied, they still were not getting effective um, cessation of bleeding. Um, when the patient arrived in the trauma bay, uh, I picked the tourniquet, the cat tourniquet that was closest to the injury. I gave it two more full turns and it was hard. I mean, I'm a small person, but you really have to crank it down. And then I removed the other three tourniquets and the bleeding stopped. Interesting. And cause I have heard for someone, especially like a, a large man who's mm -hmm. very muscly, um, especially maybe like on a thigh or something, it yes. might take two tourniquets because you just can't crank one down tight enough. Or is that just, I'm wimpy? <laughs> well, Jordan, I don't know. I'm not <laughs> sure that's true. Um, a single tourniquet ought to do it. Okay. If you turn it down hard enough, it's hard to keep cranking it down. It's helpful if the patient is not awake uh, because it is painful. Um, so I think there is some trepidation in turning the, tourniquet down enough. But then remember, there's always the option of putting a blood pressure cuff above it and putting that pressure up beyond the patient's systolic blood pressure um, as, a, as a backup as well. Okay. And so you'd said there was multiple tourniquets on this patient. Oftentimes in the field, we'll go and a bystander has used a shoelace or a belt or mm -hmm. a piece of t-shirt or something. Yeah. It, it very acutely... Um, and appropriately try to stop the bleeding. Yes. Should we take those off or leave them on? I think that bystanders using t-shirts, shirts, belts, shoelaces, that's great. Even though you may not be able to get the blood flow to stop entirely, any slowing down of the blood flow is beneficial for the patient. So I would not discourage bystanders from using them um, as long as they're used, you know, and they can always be reassessed by EMS on the scene, whether or not it's necessary, right? Um, I... You know, I think that I wouldn't necessarily advise taking tourniquets off, um, especially if you're in a rural resource limited area, because you that is really going to be uh, potentially your only method to control bleeding. Um, but I would rather than throwing on maybe more tourniquets, perhaps just using one or two of them, but more effectively would be my advice. Okay. And so you also were just talking about this can be really painful. Yes. Um, these patients are probably already pretty miserable. If they For have sure. an injury that they need a tourniquet, they're not happy campers. <laughs> and now we're giving them more pain and discomfort. Mm -hmm. Pharmacologically, is there something that is better or worse once they get to a surgical suite? Would you rather them have ketamine or fentanyl or Versed um, or be totally consciously sedated if that's an option? Yeah, I think ketamine is a great option for people like uh, this, especially if they're uh, also agitated for whatever reason in the field. Um, if you are thinking of having to do a long transport, um, I would recommend intubating the patient for better pain control um, and also for um, 
crew safety, especially if you're flying a patient, for example. Um, that's a, a long transport. It might just be safer to have a protected airway so that you have more options in terms of uh, medications that you can use to control pain and agitation. Okay. Uh, so some of our agencies locally, and I know nationally, don't have access to RSI, but may still have a longer transport. What's your recommendation for those? Those can be really difficult patients to manage. And that's one of those things I, I wish everyone could see your face because it's like, ooh, yikes, that's not, that's not good. And I think, you know, we're working toward finding better solutions, but we know that it's a, in a lot of areas, low usage, it just creates more danger for a provider when they're not doing the skill a lot. So trying to figure out how we can manage these patients safely with the tools that we are really confident with. Mm -hmm. Any recommendations there? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, fentanyl and ketamine are a good choice because you're less likely to lose your airway. Um, I think if you can rely on your... Uh, a, a good transport crew could help you um, get an airway, a secured airway on a patient. If uh, at a local facility, that skill is not something that's used uh, frequently. Um, those are probably my, my recommendations, ketamine okay. and fentanyl. But, you know, just be careful because it, you can't over-sedate. Absolutely. And <laughs> have your BVM ready, right? That's right. Um, do any meds cause a problem once you get to the OR? Complicate with the things that you guys like to use? No. Okay. That's good to know. Because, <laughs> I mean, ultimately in the field, we're always planning acutely, but then also thinking ahead, like what this patient, you know, this is traumatic. They need to go to an OR. Yeah. I don't want to do something silly that messes up what you guys are trying to do in the OR. No, we're never critical of what EMS does in the field. You know, we recognize that we're very privileged here at a level one trauma center to have so many options uh, and, and so many resources, so much help um, and access to all of the things, all the drugs and immediate access to an OR. Um, we are grateful for EMS getting patients here um, alive um, and in as good a condition as possible. Um, so no, there isn't anything that you can do in the field that can't be undone. Um, and you need to do whatever you need to do to get the patient here and, and for you and your crew to be safe as well. Perfect. So we were chatting a little bit before we started recording and I was just reminded as you talk about technology and how pampered we are here in the hospital <laughs> uh, about the, the new hybrid OR that we have here and I know are starting to pop up in different areas. Tell me about that and how that's been beneficial for care of some of these patients with limb issues. Yeah, we've had a couple cases where, again, we've had some extremity injuries that involve fractures uh, of the upper and lower extremities, but also a concomitant um, arterial injury. So our hybrid OR room allows for a full operational suite uh, for any type of uh, open operation, but um, the patient is on a um, interventional radiology type bed with a C-arm attached. And so we can do any kind of endovascular uh, case or open vascular reconstruction case. It allows them to be able to do on-table angio at the same time that the patient is getting a thoracotomy or an X-lap or an X-fix or uh, a craniotomy even. And so it allows multiple teams to uh, operate on the patient simultaneously to reduce OR time and try to get patients stabilized uh, as best we can. That sounds like we're in a futuristic movie. It's pretty awesome. How, how does that work? Like if you're doing a 
thoracostomy and mm -hmm. then you have mm -hmm. an IR physician in the other room. Yeah, or a vascular surgeon. Yeah, yeah. How, does, how do you guys work in concert like that? Oh, it's great. It's actually really fun. Um, you know, we have colleagues that we really enjoy working with and, um, you know, we consult with them frequently. We see them in the hospital, but when you're in the OR together um, working to try to stabilize a patient, it's really invigorating and it really builds those bonds that uh, reaffirms that we, also, we really do work as teams here. Um, it makes you really appreciate your consultants and it's actually, you know, exciting and fun to do it together. Nice. Um, there's plenty of room in the OR um, and we can definitely coordinate care. Um, again, we had a patient recently who needed... Um, a, a lower extremity bypass. Uh, she had a um, pretty significant uh, knee dislocation uh, with fractures of the distal femur and also proximal tibia, but she blew out her knee with that dislocation. And in doing so, she injured uh, her popliteal artery right at the trifurcation, which is a terrible spot. So um, she ended up getting a reverse saphenous vein graft uh, from her uh, popliteal to her posterior tibia. Um, then because her knee was so unstable, um, the orthopedic surgeons put a knee um, spanning X-fix on kind of at the same time. So teams are able to work side by side um, to get patients taken care of quickly. That's amazing. Do you see an improvement in outcomes with these patients instead of having to go to the OR multiple times, um, just having it all happen kind of in one fell swoop. Does that get them out of here faster? Or Yeah, it definitely um, is good when we're thinking about damage control operations, right? So patients who are in big traumas, especially if they have vascular injuries or significant um, orthopedic injuries, you know, they are acidotic. They can be hypotensive. They have hemorrhagic shock. And um, the faster we can get them out of the operating room where they can often be cold, losing more blood, um, is best. And so the quicker we can do things, the sooner we can get the patients to the ICU and continue the resuscitation. So as we're talking some about resuscitating these patients, I know there's been a movement amongst uh, some of the higher performing agencies, you know, that are FPC, flight paramedics, critical care, um, about carrying whole blood or plasma on their rigs. What's your take on that, and do you see that as the future of pre-hospital care or maybe only in a subset? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think there are ongoing randomized controlled trials of uh, whole blood in the field. Um, we're all anxiously awaiting what the results are. I think that the early data from non-randomized smaller trials have suggested that whole blood is the best, and that's what massive transfusion protocols are you know, attempting to recreate. Um, it will take uh, a culture change, especially in working with uh, blood banks across the country to start um, housing and managing whole blood because there are some storage issues related to that. And I think that hopefully that technology will uh, come around where we can keep whole blood around longer. Do you think that's the biggest hurdle is just the logistical piece of that? I think it's twofold. I think we want to have good data to support doing that because it will be a culture change. It'll be expensive. It's going to require a lot of education, yeah. uh, not only in the pre-hospital setting, but in the in-hospital setting as well. When is whole blood usage uh, appropriate um, in trauma patients, surgical patients, even medical patients like uh, cirrhotics with GI bleeds? You know, we need to have more data about what populations it's going to benefit. Um, and then it's going to take agencies who bank the blood. Um, there's going to be some changes that have to come with that as well. 
exciting to look forward to though. Yeah. I, I, I see a glimmer in your eye. <laughs> We've all, we're all anxious to see how that, how that plays out. Is it because you know that that's the first step in like you being a surgeon on a helicopter and just flying around the world performing <laughs> surgery yeah, in the field. We could probably just deliver the whole blood by drone <laughs> right to the field. Why not, right? Yep. If Amazon can do it, so can we. Can land right on top of the the uh, ambulance. That would be pretty awesome. It's a tiny drone landing site. <laughs> My son would love that. He's all about <laughs> drones right now. Um, so aside from some issues with tourniquets, mm-hmm. um, as we kind of go back to the beginning of this and some of these patients we're seeing, are there any other issues in care that you've identified from a pre-hospital standpoint? I know that you say you don't want to be critical, but we always want to know what can we do better. Is there? You mentioned temperature in the OR. Um, I think that is often something that's overlooked mm-hmm. pre-hospitally, especially with trauma patients, is keeping them warm. Is that an issue acutely or not so much? Uh, it is an issue because once bleeding starts, right, patients get into that lethal triad of coagulopathy, uh, being cold and, and shock, and it, it makes definitely makes bleeding worse. Um, and, you know, in the field, it's difficult because sometimes patients are, uh, if you're in a single vehicle accident, it might take some time before a bystander sees you. And then if it's a prolonged extrication, those patients are exposed potentially for hours before they're uh, in a hospital setting where they can be warmed. And so anything that uh, pre-hospital um, folks can do to keep that in mind is, is helpful because your um, coagulopathy is getting worse. Bleeding is worse uh, when patients are cold. So get them trauma naked, stop the bleeding that you can, and then rewarm. Rewarm. That's right. Any other things? I mean, obviously you want to find all the holes and <laughs> identify, you know, secondary survey, you know, what am I missing? What can I correct? Um, but any other kind of small things that are low-hanging fruit? Yeah, I think especially, um, you know, back on the topic of these more recent uh, high-impact uh, extremity injuries is reducing fractures and reducing dislocations as soon as possible. We had another case recently where um, we had a gentleman who had a open uh, tib-fib, uh, pretty bad, very angulated, lots of bleeding. Um Unfortunately, he ended up losing that leg because there was so much tissue injury, uh, not necessarily because of the vascular issue, but he had so much uh, muscle and soft tissue injury that he ended up losing the leg. But um, uh, reducing fractures to um, unkink any uh, uh, injured vessels is helpful to try to revascularize or at least try to return blood flow to the distal limb and splinting. Um, pressure dressings are great. Uh, we had another interesting case of a patient with a left upper extremity dislocation. His humeral head was anteriorly dislocated out of the glenoral humeral fossa, and the head of the humerus was pinching the axillary artery just as it crossed the rim of the uh, glenoid. And so it was hard to tell because the patient was a very large muscular man and um, he didn't have that sort of very obvious swelling that you might have been able to identify in a, in a thinner patient. Um, but he had no palpable pulses uh, in the arm. And when we did the um, CT angio of the arm, we saw that there would, had been the dislocation there. Uh, because he was such a big muscular guy, we had a hard time reducing that dislocation. Um, even with the orthopedic surgeons at the bedside in the trauma bay, because we uh, we knew right away that we needed some early orthopedic intervention. 
And it wasn't until we were in the OR with him paralyzed and completely relaxed and lots of pulling by a couple of folks in the OR were we able to reduce that injury. And so, um, you know, it wasn't until that was reduced that we were able to reestablish blood flow to that hand. And how long was that hand without flow? And did that create any complications once you got flow back? Yeah, probably several hours. He was a uh, transport from a distance. Um, and so he was a, one of those cases where there was a prolonged extrication at the scene, but then he had to be flown here. Um, and so it would have been hours, probably over four, perhaps even close to five before it was reduced. Um, once the uh, fracture dislocation was reduced, we got flow uh, back in the axillary down to the distal brachial, kind of at the level just above the elbow. But again, we still did not have immediate return of flow to the hand. And it turned out that because of the um, uh, kink up at the axillary, the low flow state in that artery caused clotting to occur. And so he had a big clot in the brachial. Um, and so again, in that hybrid IR uh, OR suite, um, we were able to do an on-table thrombectomy take that clot out. And that's actually how we got flow all the way back down to the hand. So even just reducing it can help, but it's not always going to, um, it might not be enough. That patient might still need a surgical intervention to return flow um, to the to the distal part of the limb. So does that potentially create risk out of a hospital setting if you're, if someone has a, a pulseless arm and you're trying to make a minor adjustment to increase flow and get some pulses? If it's been that way for a while, if they, you know, you did a high angle rescue and they've been out there like that for four hours, mm -hmm. and you're trying to do a little manipulation, does that, should you wait? Does that create risk in moving that clot and creating another problem? Or no, because even if you to get... were to dislodge that clot distally, let's say, um, we can still remove that clot in the OR. So try to get some pulses back. Yeah, because even if you move the clot more distal, you're still getting blood flow more yeah. distal to where you, you had been. So, you know, we're always trying to reestablish blood flow, try to reduce any uh, angulations or um, dislocations and try to splint. Um, we're, we're always in favor of that. Well, I know we only had a little time today. I don't want to take too much. I think we've covered a ton in a short period of time. Really interesting cases. Yeah, it's um, been a busy summer, but yeah, lots of interesting cases. So much to learn. Yeah, I would love to have you back another time. I know you've had a couple of uh, kind of truncal injuries that have been interesting lately. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can do another little brief topic on that. But I really appreciate your time today. Any kind of parting words or last pearls that you want to share? Um, yeah, it's been a busy summer, especially in this time of COVID. I think that... Um, patients are um, additionally stressed out just from their day-to-day -day living. Um, and then to have a big trauma on top of that has really, I think, um, been really hard on our patients, uh, more so than in other summers where we've been busy. I think that um, medical staff in pre-hospital and in the hospital are also additionally strained um, because the times where we should be becoming rejuvenated, um, those times are more stressful too. You know, it's, uh, there's stress in the world when we're supposed to be more relaxed and so we can return to full function when we're um, taking care of patients. And so I would say um, be kind to yourselves, be kind to your colleagues, and uh, give our patients some uh, leeway uh, because I think everyone is, uh, you know, everyone's stressing and straining. Um, 
but I am so grateful for those of us that are still here and working. And um, it's that collegiality and that teamwork that's going to get us through. So thanks. Thank you. And to that point, make sure that you give yourself a break, find that time and, and rejuvenate because your patients need you to be there as be much your, as you yeah, can be. Be your best. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for your time. Thanks, What a Jordan. pleasure. Thank you.